Stanley Kubrick was born in New York City in 1928, a descendant of Jewish emigres from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His father, Jacob, known as Jack, was the grandson of a family from Probuzna in eastern Galicia, now Probezhna in Ukraine. Stanley grew to adolescence in a world convulsed by the Great Depression, the rise of fascism and Nazism in Europe, the Second World War, and the Holocaust. By the end of October in Stanley's 14th year, 1942, all of Probuzna's Jews had been shot in the woods or gassed at Belzhak. Kubrick was a preternaturally observant young man as his subsequent careers as photojournalist and filmmaker attest. He also lived and worked within a Jewish cultural and intellectual milieu in New York, which Nathan Abrams has demonstrated was central to his artistic development. Kubrick's first two wives were Jewish, the second a 1938 immigrant from Austria. His third wife, Christiane, by contrast, had grown up in a family of artists in Nazi Germany and was the niece of filmmaker Veit Harlan. Harlan, in 1940, directed the viciously anti-Semitic melodrama Jew Seuss that succeeded in mobilizing wartime German hatred against the Jews. Kubrick was fascinated by Harlan's story and in the 1950s wanted to make a film about him and Nazi propaganda minister Josef Goebbels. He never made this film, nor won the German lieutenant earlier the same decade about Nazi soldiers at the end of the war. This approach avoidance with regard to the subject of Nazism would be a pattern throughout Kubrick's career, particularly when it came to the heart of Nazi darkness that was the Holocaust. In 1961, Raoul Hilberg published The Destruction of the European Jews, an exhaustively detailed study of the bureaucracy of the Nazi final solution. By the 1970s, Kubrick was pressing this book on people in pursuit of a film on the subject. In the exhibition upstairs is Kubrick's annotated copy of Hilberg's book, open to a page on which is written, Great Scene. In 1975, Kubrick had his executive producer, Jan Harlan, read the book and sent Harlan to ask Isaac Besheva Singer to help Kubrick write a screenplay on the Holocaust, but Singer declined. In the early 1980s, Kubrick contacted Hilberg himself for suggestions on a source for a Holocaust film, but this initiative, too, came to nothing. The closest Kubrick came was Aryan Papers, based on Louis Begley's novelized memoir of his experience as a hidden child in Poland. But again, in the end, Kubrick could not make the film after laboring alone on the screenplay. Christiane could not recall a time when she had seen Stanley so depressed. Kubrick's inability to make a film about the Holocaust was based on both personal and aesthetic grounds. He had found the process unendurable. He also had grave doubts about the ability of any film to depict the subject adequately. This is an issue that remains, of course, as the recent controversy over Son of Saul illustrates. 
But eventually this murder too would out in the form of the indirect visual and oral discourse characteristic of Kubrick's films. Kubrick was a master of depth of field as a means of expression of ideas through objects. For example, in 1964's Dr. Strangelove. When one notices the incongruity in this shot and two others, one wonders why an American B-52 bomber flying over the Soviet Union in the 1960s cast the shadow of an American B-17 flying fortress bomber from the Second World War. All of which brings us to The Shining. My argument is that Kubrick sublimated his feelings and thoughts about a Holocaust film into this 1980 production. Beginning in the 1970s, the subject of the Holocaust was beginning to migrate into a variety of film genres. Nathan Abrams has rightly argued that such transgressive use of the Holocaust is problematic. A horror film would seem especially problematic in terms of trivialization, although Carolyn Picard and David Frank have posited that it is precisely the genre of horror that deals with subject matter central to the Holocaust. Are these all reasons why Kubrick chose to create an indirect discourse on homo homini lupus in The Shining, and one that includes a deeply laid subtext on the one subject he would never bring himself to address directly? All of Kubrick's films regard nature, the world, and human beings and their institutions as often capricious and malevolent. Once again in The Shining, the Overlook Hotel represents history as the workings of the powerful on the powerless. A child, Danny, and an African-American, Halloran, can see, shine, into both the past and the future of the hotel, which was built beginning in 1907 on a Native American burial ground. The occasion of Danny's first vision of the hotel introduces 42 as a repeated reference to the Holocaust. Marat Grinberg has an analyzed similar use of 1941 as a symbol of the Holocaust in Jean-Pierre Melville's post-war Le silence de la mer. And what Danny sees, linked to this hotel machinery, is Jack's typewriter, an Adler, German for eagle, a common symbol of state power, as well as a bird of prey. This first shot of the typewriter is accompanied on the soundtrack by a horrific booming, which underscores this mechanical device as a symbol of the bureaucracy of the final solution that is the subject of Hilberg's book. The sound itself is revealed to be Jack throwing a yellow tennis ball hard against a wall decorated with Native American designs. This links two European genocides in consecutive centuries as part of what Bill Blakemore has detailed as another discourse in The Shining on European decimation of Native Americans. Jack will become the murderous servant of the hotel, his typewriter reduced from creative instrument to rote mechanical obedience to a hotel whose elevator disgorges oceans of blood. To this end as well, Kubrick had Jack's typewriter painted blue for a later scene when Jack dreams to the music on the soundtrack of Pendereski's The Dream of Jacob, of murdering his wife and child. 
Blue in Kubrick's films, and markedly in The Shining, is most often associated with cold, mighty, malevolent power. The Shining is Kubrick's updating of Thomas Mann's 1924 novel, The Magic Mountain. Mann, a Christian, saw Europe in deep crisis after the First World War, but held out hope for civilization. While in The Magic Mountain, the number seven is linked with disorder and fate, it also serves as a symbol of rational overcoming of irrational urges and powers. Kubrick, a Jew working in the shadow of the Holocaust, could not embrace such hope. As he once put it, Gentiles don't know how to worry. The Shining adopts Mons 7 as a symbol exclusively of danger and destruction, linked through years in the hotel's history, 1907, 1921, and 1970. Kubrick's favorite writer was Kafka, who died in 1924, his last unfinished novel, The Castle, using the eagle as symbol of the mystery and malevolence of temporal power. Does the indirection Kubrick employs in The Shining solve any of the problems associated with artistic representation of the Holocaust? Does such indirection create its own problems? An argument for indirection is that it separates serious historical subject matter from the luster of presentation and entertainment, reserving it for the reception of the viewer in the con context of reflection, thought, and inquiry. In The Shining, therefore, the devil lies in the details. Some of you might have been able to see this. Here reads Heinz Kosher Dill Slices. Jack has been locked in the larder by wife Wendy, but the ghost of a former hotel caretaker will let Jack out, history thereby repeating itself as the tale of man being a wolf to man. Thank you. What I'm interested in is positioning Stanley Kubrick in a New York Jewish intellectual milieu and thinking about Kubrick as one of the so-called New York intellectuals, that group of um, writers, poets, essayists um, that came to prominence in the sort of 30s, 40s, and 50s and that wrote for magazines like Partisan Review, Commentary Magazine, New Leader. Um, so here we have a picture of the group of, uh, of the New York intellectuals, you know, that, that group of Jews who studied at City College of New York because they quotas kept them out of uh, Columbia and other Ivy League colleges. They were radicals, uh, often Trotskyites, um, who then rejected their radicalism. But they're very, what, what I would argue is that Kubrick isn't a New York intellectual in the strict sense of a capital NYI, but that his concerns mirrored theirs in the post-Holocaust age. And much of what he did in film is what they did in writing. And that, that his films address the same concerns as those. And I'll just give you a snapshot of some of the early films uh, this evening. and. Um, Tomorrow I'll talk about 2001 exclusively, and if you want to know the rest, you have to buy the book. Uh, or you can read a teaser chapter in this new Perspectives collection that's in the shop there. Rather than position Kubrick as a New York intellectual, like so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the New York intellectuals, they were, they were the group who subsequently became neoconservatives, uh, such as Norman Podhoretz or William Crystal, Nathan Glazer, 
Um, um, I, I prefer to position Kubrick as this group of uh, other New York intellectuals or alternative New York intellectuals. So people who are from New York, you know, in the Lenny Bruce sense of being from New York, if you're uh, from New York, you're Jewish, even if you're Goyish, and if you're from Boot, Montana, you're Goyish, even if you're Jewish. And we, of course, we have Lenny Bruce up there, but here we have uh, Mad Magazine, uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg, who was at Columbia roughly the same time as Kubrick. One of the key points of my argument is that Kubrick audited classes at Columbia University taught by the likes of the first generation of New York intellectuals like Lionel Trilling, and thus in the classroom at the same time as the second generation of New York intellectuals, such as Norman Podhoretz and Allen Ginsberg was a contemporary. Um, we also have Bob Dylan. I haven't yet found a connection formally between Bob Dylan and Stanley Kubrick, but if one was to look at what Bob Dylan's singing, there's a similarity in interest in themes uh, as to what Kubrick's doing in his films. We have Jules Pfeiffer, whose Sex, Sex, Sex Kubrick admired, and Kubrick uh, wanted to work with Pfeiffer wrote to him, I can't remember the date offhand, but in the 60s, describing a plot that, found it, that sounded suspiciously similar to what would become Eyes Wide Shut. So it never worked out. Um, Joseph Heller, bottom left. Um, Joseph Heller was writing Catch-22 round about the same time as Kubrick was um, making Dr. Strangelove if I've got my dates correct. Although I studied, I trained as a historian, I'm, I, my memory for dates is terrible, so I apologize if I've made an error. But in writing, I would have got it right. Here we have Lenny Bruce in the middle, and I'm trying to remember who bottom right is. Salinger, Salinger J.D. Salinger, thank you. The Lenny Bruce archives have just gone to um, Brandeis University, so we'll be able to explore the connection. Kubrick admired Bruce, and you can see some similarities. I mean, one of the similarities I would suggest is, is when Bruce is arrested for obscenity for saying the word schmuck, um, the original character of General Buck Turgidson in Dr. Strangelove was originally called General Buck Schmuck. Um, and he changed it, possibly because there was a schmuck in the New York telephone directory for 1962-1963. Either that, you know, they didn't want to get sued or that was just someone's sense of humor, or because Kubrick realized if Bruce is getting arrested for saying schmuck, I, I shouldn't put it in this film. So even though Turgidson doesn't retain the name, he very much plays like one in the film. And if you think of his surname and what schmuck means, you can see another connection there. And then we have J.D. Salinger. Again, the, the ending of um, Dr. Strangelove uh, as General Kong, uh, sorry, Major Kong rides the atom bomb down to Earth, and, and literally in this nuclear orgasm, uh, uh, is prefigured in Catherine the Rye, where there's a line along the lines of, when it, I will ride an atom bomb down to Earth. I've just sort of discovered this. Uh, Jeffrey, in his book, makes a connection between Salinger and uh, Kubrick, but not least because Wendy is reading a copy of The Shining in, uh, of Catcher in the Rye in The Shining. So here's some connections to sort of alternative Jewish intellectuals that one can find in Kubrick's work. Uh, and that's where I'm positioning him. If we could move on, um, and I'll give you an example of how this plays out. So if Kubrick's early films, one could class his first three films, his first feature films, his first three films were documentaries, but his first three feature films, Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, and The Killing, as sort of uh, junior exercises in existentialism. And existentialism, very much the key intellectual fad of the 40s and 50s amongst New York intellectuals, uh, as inspired by Sartre and Camus in particular. And, um, but the thing that, that's interested me, and I just came across recently, was this, um, the top 
the best-selling New York Times books of, of, I think it was 1948, were, were Jewish American war novels. And here are the two most prominent, Leonurus's Battle Cry and Mailer's, Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead. And in these novels, and these aren't the only two, and arguably, some people have argued that J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye is also a Jewish-American war novel based on Salinger's own experiences, is these two novels show the experience of the American GI, the Jewish-American GI, and they foreground this kind of tough Jew with an intellectual side in uh, The Naked and the Dead, and in particular in Leonurus's battle cry, because Leonurus volunteered and served in the United States Marine Corps, and then went out to the Pacific Theater, and then wrote this book based on his experiences. And to me, Kubrick is somehow drinking this in, and, and it's influencing his work. But most particularly, I would say this comes out in Full Metal Jacket later on, and there's some lines in Full Metal Jacket that word for word taken from Battle Cry, because they're based on marine chants and, and, and marine ideas. So this is one of the ways I'm positioning Kubrick as a New York intellectual, or an alternative Jewish New York intellectual, by relating him to what the key texts of the period are and what intellectuals are writing and reading. So if we take Killer's Kiss, I've mentioned the existentialism and the killing. The other thing I'm interested in is what Kubrick did with the Jews in his source material. In these texts, he wrote these themselves. So in Fear and Desire, we have a clear portrait of a Jewish soldier, Private Sidney, played by Paul Mazursky in his first role as the Jewish GI. And he provides, Kubrick provides an alternative picture of the Jewish GI compared to those texts that I've just shown you earlier. What we see in the bottom pictures are other Jewish characters, or this is Davy the boxer in Killer's Kiss, that can be read as Jewish, even if they're not explicitly Jewish on the screen. The reason I make this argument is the boxing genre is a very popular genre amongst Jewish directors, um, whether, the, whether the boxers were explicitly Jewish or not. So the classic would be Body and Soul or, or Kirk Douglas's The Champion. So one can position Kubrick in a very Jewish genre, just as lots of Jewish directors are making film noir. These are exercises in film noir as well. And here we have, in the bottom right, a well-known sort of Yiddish actor from the Yiddish theatre playing the lone shark in The Killing. So whilst there are Jewish characters, explicit Jewish characters in the source text for The Killing, they're removed for the film, but reinserted by putting a recognisably Jewish actor in the character of the lone shark, you know, drawing upon age-old caricatures of, of Jews as usurers. Um, and what we see top right, this is a poster for a Lenny Bruce burlesque show in The Killing. So, so thus proving <laughs> um, the connection. With his Kirk Douglas films, again, they very much mirror the sort of intellectual concerns of, of well, 50s literature, particularly in Leonorris's Exodus, but we also see it in Battle Cry, of this idea of the macho mensch. So the, the tough Jew, but who's also got a conscience and acts like a fine, upstanding, ethical human being. You know, he's not one-dimensionally tough, nor is he just one-dimensionally intellectual. He, he embodies both characteristics. And we see this as a concern in sort of more popular literature, and, and, and Exodus was a huge success. Uh, uh, when it came out, as was Battle Cry. Um, I might be stretching a point to say they're intellectual. I, I appreciate that. And in his two Kirk Douglas films, mainly at the behest of Kirk Douglas, we have this star vehicle of Colonel Dax in Pars of Glory and then Spartacus and Spartacus of these Jewish characters. I mean, subtextually Jewish characters played by Kirk Douglas, but playing these tough, strong, 
men, a French colonel who's, a, who's also a lawyer in the Pars of Glory, and then as Spartacus, the leader of the slave rebellion in Spartacus. The reason I've used this slide is here's a character called David the Jew. So a whole chapter in the original Spartacus by Howard Fast was narrated from the perspective of David the Jew. Now, David the Jew appears in the screenplay drafts, um, but by the time the film comes, he's still in the film, but he's never named as David the Jew, but he's played by a Jewish actor. That's, that's, that's one of the things that Kubrick did, is he kind of, the, the, the traces of Jewishness remained in his films, just not explicitly. And if you're familiar with the source texts and the screenplays and other things, you can make these connections and with the actors, but not necessarily just from watching the film. And here we have, of course, Bernie Schwartz as Tony Curtis, also born in the same hospital where Kubrick's dad worked. And these two bonded uh, on the film of Spartacus. He was brought in because uh, Kirk Douglas owed him a favor from the Vikings. Uh, so the Vikings are Jewish, as the Jewish Chronicle reported. Um, but the reason I, I picked this slide is what we see in these films are these very kind of very positive representations of the Jewish male body as tough, as, as muscular, very much fitting into sort of Jewish concerns of this period that Paul Brines would write about in, in the 60s as tough Jews. I'll, I'll talk about this briefly. This is quite a complicated film. This is Kubrick's rebellion. The reason I've called this rebellion is this is where he rejects his Kirk Douglas years. He's, he's made two films for Kirk Douglas. Spartacus wasn't a happy experience because he lacked uh, total control. There were multiple voices on that film. But in his film, he produced a very complex picture of subsurface Jewishness through the characters of Humbert Humbert and Quilty, played by Peter Sellers, who was Jewish and grew up at the top of the road I grew up on. There's a little connection. I delivered papers to the area where he went to St. Aloysius School. So as a Jewish boy, as the only Jewish boy at a Catholic school, Peter Sellers was very aware of his ethnic otherness. But we see him here playing these kind of uh, Jewish caricatures. Dr. Zempf here as the beatnik, as the literary sort of hipster. Here he is as a photographer, as a New York beatnik living in Greenwich Village as a sort of Freudian-style intellectual, um, as someone who enjoys table tennis. These were all things that Kubrick also enjoyed. So what we see here is in this complex portrait of Jewish masculinity, um, subsurface Jewish masculinity, not only does it draw on negative stereotypes of Jewishness, for those of you familiar with Lolita, but it also draws on Kubrick himself. And here, this is James B. Harris, who was Kubrick's producing partner at the time, playing Jack Brewster, the companion of Peter Sellers, and, and Peter Sellers orders him to get some Type B Kodachrome, it, probably in the same way that Kubrick ordered James B. Harris to do it. So this is Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, uh, this is where I, I, I mean, I'm heavily indebted to, to Jeffrey Cox's work. I mean, without it, I, I wouldn't be where I was today. He really opened up the horizons of, of how to do Jewish readings of Kubrick in a cultural, intellectual context and using archives, and, and I would say was the first person to do that. Um, well, for me, the film that Kubrick did make about the Holocaust was Dr. Strangelove, for several reasons. One, it draws upon the key text. You've heard about um, Raoul Hilberg already. Um, in 62, um, Hannah Arendt is publishing a series of articles that are collated as the banality of evil. Um, this is when St Stanley Milgram is beginning to conduct his obedience experiments. These note cards, these are from Kubrick's archives, 
explicitly talk about, um, so this is probably the clearest to read, Jews cooperating in their own destruction, six million Jews to the gas. And what we see is very much uh, Kubrick replicating the ideas emanating from Arendt and Hilberg, those twin ideas that one, evil is banal, it doesn't come in a monstrous form, and two, that Jews cooperated in their own destruction. And the sequence to really think about in Dr. Strangelove, well, it's, it's Schmuck, Buck Schmuck's Turgidson's, if, if you remember the film, this probably embarrassed myself when he does his impression of the uh, plane coming in over the, have they got a chance? Hell yeah, they got a chance. And he realizes what he's saying. He's so caught up in will his boys make it. He doesn't think about the wider picture. That's, that's precisely a dramatization of the issue of the lack of thoughtlessness that Arendt said Eichmann suffered from. But the key, the key sequence, if you're to watch, um, watch it again, is when they're going on the bombing run and um, this is James L. Jones' first role, and they're trying to open the bomb bay doors, and it won't work, and you can see him sweating because he's worried that he can't do his job. But his job is to participate in the destruction of the Earth, but he's sweating. He's so caught up in the minutiae of what he's doing, he can't see the bigger picture. And that's precisely what Arendt and Hilberg were talking about. And as an example of this, in his introduction to this book, which is published later, Stanley Milgram draws upon that very sequence to say, this is precisely the issue of obedience to authority that troubled Abraham and troubles us in the Holocaust and post-Holocaust era. So this is how I'm trying to position Stanley Kubrick as a New York intellectual, drawing upon the key texts of the period and reflecting the same concerns of the New York intellectuals. Um, and this is where I end. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here, and it's especially wonderful to share stage with these two scholars. I've learned a lot from them. I primarily will talk about the Aryan Papers project that both Jeffrey and Nathan uh, alluded to. But before we do that, let's consider for a moment the relationship between Stanley Kubrick's films and literature. So his relationship to literature, to books, was complex and also, I would say, paradoxical. The director who insisted on cinema's special visual aesthetic worked only with adaptations rather than original scripts, with some very few exceptions, and usually he worked in collaboration. For him, adaptation was a dramatization of what he called unseen obsessions of character rather than action or artistic style. And so these unseen obsessions lead us to the question of Kubrick's uh, Jewishness, I think both Jeffrey and Nathan made it quite clear that Jewishness was of paramount importance to, to Kubrick, but I'd like to quote from uh, Friedrich Raphael, who, was, who worked with Kubrick on the script of Eyes Wide Shot, who's a prolific writer himself, and he said the following, it is absurd to try to understand Stanley Kubrick without reckoning on Jewishness as a fundamental aspect of his mentality, if not of his work in general. Right, so what does that mean here? Clearly, biography is very important here, as Nathan talked about, and context, and New York, and everything connected with that. What's interesting about Kubrick's Jewishness is inability to understand Gentiles. It seems that Kubrick really did think that the world is divided into two groups of people, Jews and non-Jews, who think in very, in very, very different ways. And, and Raphael attributes this quote to Kubrick, Right, couple of Jews, what do we know about what those people talk about when, they're, when they are by themselves? And those people are the, are the Gentiles. So I would say Jewishness for Kubrick meant two things. He saw it as a biological condition, 
something that you're born with and can get rid of, but he also saw it as an existential condition. That is, the Jewish condition in, in the world is specific. And, and even though he was a deeply secular artist, thinker, and person, as many other modern Jewish figures, he clearly was deeply interested in his own Jewishness and what that meant. And based on that, I would say that primarily Jewishness works in Kubrick's films allegorically. In other words, the situations and the characters that are depicted in Kubrick's films are allegorical portrayals of the Jewish condition in the world. And, and German Jewish, great German Jewish critic, Walter Benjamin, he talks about allegory as experience. That is through allegory, we get to experience something that we can't experience in any other way. And it is through Kubrick's films that we can almost sense experience Jewishness. His first film, Fear and Desire, for which he actually wrote the script himself. He describes this film, and, and Nathan talks, but he describes this film in the following way. He says its structure, allegorical. Its conception, poetic. A drama of man lost in a hostile world, deprived of material and spiritual foundations, seeking his way to an understanding of himself and of life around him. And that, for me, is very much a blueprint for understanding Kubrick's work in general, particularly, again, the place, the allegorical place of Jewishness in his work. What is also interesting about fear and desire is the idea of proximity to the enemy and how you resemble the enemy so that to the point that you and the enemy converge. And this is precisely what interested Kubrick when it came to the Holocaust. So when we think about the Holocaust, Kubrick's approach to the Holocaust, I think we need to keep this allegorical framework in mind. We need to keep in mind the idea of the visual and also why, of course, the Aryan papers did not materialize. Why, ultimately, whenever we talk about Kubrick's Holocaust projects, we talk about failure. That is failure, at least as far as the finished uh, project is concerned. So as Jeffrey mentioned, Kubrick has been, been thinking about finding a text for his Holocaust film for decades. Finally, he ends up with Beagley's novel, Wartime Lies, published in 1991. And again, Friedrich Raphael nicely describes the novel or the characters in the novel as adepts of fraudulence. The novel is primarily autobiographical. It is about an aunt and nephew who are Jews in Warsaw, and they have the Aryan papers, that is the papers that they're not Jews, and this is how they're able to survive. And the novel describes these various ways in which uh, the situations that they're involved in, how they're able to survive. The novel, I think, for Kubrick was precisely as an example of this unseen obsession that is his own, his own obsession with the Holocaust. And also, you know, I think when, when we talk about this uh, allegorical portrayal of Jewishness in, in, in Kubrick's work and the specific and Jewish condition in the world, I think the perfect illustration for that is the very idea of eyes wide shut, which is, of course, the, the title of Kubrick's last film, Eyes wide shut, just kind of think what that means, right? So eyes are wide open, but they're not open, they're shut, which means that you, whose eyes are wide shut, don't see what's happening over there, right? And those who look at you also don't see what's happening inside of you. And that, I think, precisely is the Jewish condition for Kubrick. That is kind of this unbridgeable divide between you as a Jew and the rest of the world. Right? And so you constantly have to find ways of negotiating your place in the world and of masking your Jewishness and perhaps of faking who you are. And I think it's precisely, again, what attracted him in that novel, this idea of eyes wide shot. I spent some time working in the Kubrick archives and researching the materials relating to the Aryan Papers Project. And I would just quickly 
we'll go through some of the changes that Kubrick made. He wrote a number of treatments, a number of versions of the script. So this is what he says in the first notebook uh, on Aryan papers in the first script. He's interested in action, language. Tanya, who is the main character at the end, he says, Tanya is ruthless in her pursuit of survival, unemotional. As he moves, moves on, he is really interested, again, in the visual, right? That is, finding that specific visual language for depicting what he needs to depict. Uh, and interestingly, we will talk about the archive, right? But when you come to the archive in the University of Arts in London, uh, what you find there are just boxes and boxes and boxes of, of materials, and particularly when it came to the Aryan papers, so you have boxes that are filled with reproductions of photographs that Kubrick was collecting as he was working on the projects. Photographs that have to do with, with the Holocaust atrocities, Jewish life in Poland, and I will come back to that later. What he is really thinking about, again, finding that visual, kind of visual language, he's thinking about the long tradition of inclusion of documentary footage into live action, right? It's particularly thinking about the figure of Dos Passos. Uh, the American writer who was in the Spanish Civil War with Hemingway and who was really interested in this idea of incorporating footage into live action. The one film, probably don't have time to talk about this, but of course, again, there is a long tradition of the relationship between documentary and live action when it comes to war films, when it comes to the Holocaust, and, and Kubrick was very much aware of that. One film that I think really is important here, and Kubrick might very well have been aware of it, and Nathan might help me with that, is Sam Fuller's Forbotten. And Sam Fuller was, was, was an American Jewish director. Has anybody seen Forbotten? It is this absolutely fascinating film of an American GI at the end of the war in Germany, involved with a German woman, but the idea that's at the core of the film, that is how do we re-educate the Germans after the war? How do we make the Germans realize that what they did was horrific, right? And so the film ends with this American soldier taking, going to the Nuremberg trials and taking uh, his girlfriend's son, who's involved with the neo-Nazis after the war, and, and he's shown the footage of the atrocities, and that's supposed to re-educate him. And actually, in, in the film, that works. But of course, the film where this doesn't work is Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, right? Alex kind of sort of changes through seeing what he's been shown, but of course the ending, he's absolutely libera liberated, right? Uh, so Kubrick was always very conscious and interested in this, in this relation, in, that is the impact that the visual has on the audience, particularly the moral impact. So what he does as we move from one treatment, uh, one version of the script to the next, he eliminates all the explicit references to to Jews, to Judaism, to Jewish life in, in Poland. Uh, there are a number of them in the book, and he eliminates all of them. What he makes absolutely central and what he adds to the book is that Tanya, this aunt, ends up joining the partisans, right, and becomes part of the resistant movement and actually given a job of killing a Nazi officer. And the films that he's really watching and interested in around the time of working on these scripts are particularly the Polish films. The Polish films, so here we have a number of major Polish directors working after the war. We have Vida, we have Alexander Ford, who makes one of the great first films about the Holocaust, Ulica Hranichna, the border street, and then Natan Gross, a Polish Yiddish filmmaker who then ends up in Israel and who makes one of the first Holocaust, what could be considered Holocaust comedy, Unsere Kinder, uh, Our Children, which is made in Yiddish in Poland right at the, at the end of the war, 45, uh, 45 or 46. And the children 
in that, uh, uh, in that film, sing a partisan song, a song of Jewish, of Jewish partisans. So Kubrick is really interesting, maybe perhaps going back to what Nathan talked about in this idea of the, of the Jewish macho man, right? That is the, the idea of Jew as militant, as resisting, as resisting evil. And in the second version of the script, Kubrick actually has Tanya and the nephew going to Palestine after the war, and of course Palestine will become the newly established uh, state of Israel. In the last version of the script that we have, he eliminates that. So again, absolute, right, but we have this absolute elimination of anything that would be explicitly Jewish. Again, going back to this idea of the resistance, right, uh, and this Jewish, Jewish mentality uh, from both, and he quotes almost something like that in the script. Right? So he's, I have never particularly thought of myself as a Jew, but now I know I am. Hitler taught me that. I'm tired of running like a frightened animal. I want to join you. So this comes from the script. Tanya says that. The ant says that to the Polish, to the, I forget exactly if it's the Polish partisans or if it's the Soviets, right? Says that to them. Now, what's interesting is that this quote, almost verbatim, appears in the, in, in the work of these two writers. So the one on the left is Ilya Ehrenburg, was a major Soviet Jewish figure, uh, both uh, during the 30s and then, uh, and then during the war. Uh, in 1941, Ehrenburg, who is a Jew himself, he says something precisely like that. That is, I've forgotten that I was a Jew because I was living in this wonderful, glorious Soviet land, but the Nazis have reminded me that I'm, that I'm a Jew. Right, and then you can see the resemblance, and, and Kubrick could have been very much aware of it, or even if he was not aware, right? I mean, these things are in the air. Uh, and the person on the right is Julian Tuvim, a Polish, a Polish Jewish writer who famously says, uh, once the war begins, that uh, the blood that's running in my veins, so there is a blood that's coursing through my veins, and there is blood that's dripping out of my veins. So the blood that's dripping out of my veins is the Jewish blood. And why? Because I'm being killed by the Nazis. And again, the Nazis have reminded me of who I am, right? Again, this kind of inescapable Jewish, inescapable Jewish biological condition. So again, thinking about the context um, that he is, that Kubrick maybe is, uh, is drawing on. And so my last point, probably the most important point, I would say. Uh, so here is what we have in the, in the archives. If you open up these boxes and you have these piles and piles and piles and piles of photographs. And what's really interesting, these are not original photographs. These are reproductions of photographs, which is also something to think about. Um, and as you can see here, um, he certainly, from what, from what I could tell, he certainly would not have depicted the atrocity. But he was very much interested in depicting the Jewish, pre-war Jewish life. And how was he supposed to do that? Because again, it's Kubrick, right? And Kubrick is about the visual. Kubrick is about finding that special cinematic, cinematic language, despite the fact that he was so interested in literature. Ultimately, for him, it was about the image. So I would say, in order to understand what he would have done in the Aryan papers had he succeeded, we need to look at his film, uh, Barry Lyndon. And in Barry Lyndon, we have what some have called uh, a painterly aesthetic. Right? So this is 18th century Ireland, and the scenes are composed to resemble paintings of the period. And I know there's some work that has been done that shows he was actually relying on the 19th century paintings. That's great. But, but ultimately, this idea of the painterly aesthetic uh, remains. Right? I will quote one critic who says, close scrutiny of the settings reveals not only the character of the people who inhabit them, but the spirit of the entire age as Kubrick understands it. Right? So how do you capture the spirit of the age is the question that Kubrick is asking himself, right? You have to look at the art of that age, 
right? And of course, it's the paintings when we're talking about the when we're talking about the 18th century. So just like in Barry Lyndon, the paintings played played that role in capturing the era. In the Aryan papers, it was supposed to be the photographs, right? Because of course, the photography is the premier visual medium when we think about when we think about World War II. So again, what he did with paintings in Barry Lyndon, I think he wanted to do unsuccessfully with photographs in the Aryan papers. And so in approaching history, Kubrick acts as a commentator who approaches the year at hand as a canon embodied in its art, which he perpetuates through his visual commentary, making familiar its radiant but alien presence. It's a vision of reality which is irreducible to verbal formulation preserving not the immediacy, but the pastness of the past. I think that's kind of the key, the pastness of the past, its remoteness and irretrievability, memory and nostalgia, right? Which leads us to the last question, of course, why the Aryan papers? It was a failure, and I know the usual explanation that he was so depressed, and I don't doubt the fact that he might have been depressed when he was making it, uh, or that Spielberg was coming out with, with, with Schindler's Lake. And again, I don't doubt the fact that maybe that played some role, but ultimately, I think we need to look for more serious reasons which we can never know for sure. But I would say precisely this idea of the pastness of the past. The Holocaust, the war were too immediate to capture that pastness of the past. Because in Barry Lyndon, we're dealing with 18th century Ireland, which is so removed from this New York Jew that Stanley Kubrick was. I think the question of evil, uh, the necessity of the survivor, and ultimately the director's inability to be detached from the material are some of the things that we need to consider when we think about why his Holocaust film never, never materialized. And so I think now we've had two, uh, so Jeffrey's and Nathan, so Jeffrey said for him the Holocaust, Kubrick's Holocaust film is The Shining, and Nathan said for him the Kubrick's Holocaust film is Dr. Strangelove. So for me, and since I'm the last one speaking, this is what will stand, Kubrick's Holocaust film is Eyes Wide Shut, which is of course the film that he turns to after the Aryan papers goes nowhere. In Eyes Wide Shut, he returns to allegorical representation of Jewishness. It's based on a deeply Jewish novel written by an Austrian Jewish writer, but he absolutely makes sure that all the explicit Jewish references are eliminated, right? It is a, it is a film about violence, power, and authority. And as I said, Eyes Wide Shut, is, it is that it is that Jewish condition. And of course, what's really interesting is that in Eid's White Shot, it's sexuality that becomes the Jew's language, which again can tell us a lot about what kind of a thinker uh, Stanley Kubrick was. Thank you. Gentlemen, that was a really rich discussion of these aspects of looking at Kubrick's films through this Jewish perspective. There was so much there, and we could dig into this, but I think I'm going to step back a little bit and actually ask a stuff question first, because you have spent time in the archives. And I think it would be interesting to our audience to hear a little bit about what that looks like, and also as historians and film scholars, but looking for this Jewish story, how you proceeded through the archives looking for this. The way I like to characterize the archive is you go there thinking, I'm going to find the magic bullet. I'm going to find the, the note saying, I did it. You know, the Lee Harvey Oswald note saying, I did it. Um, I'm going to find all the answers, but you don't. To me, the best analogy uh, or allegory for the uh, uh, archives is the monolith 
of 2001. Yeah, it reflects yourself back at it. You find in there what you want to find in there. You don't find Kubrick's answers. I mean, the question I always get asked is how much of this did Kubrick intend? Um, and have you found anything that tells you that? Well, the answer is no, in short, because I think it's for two reasons. One, according to most people like Michael Herr, who described making Full Metal Jacket, um, which I want to throw at you in a, in a later, is, um, was a two-year-long phone call. So one, he did a lot of his business over the phone. Secondly, I think he did it because he didn't want people like us coming along after going, ha, I have the answer. I think he knew we existed. Uh, not us specifically, our types. And um, he didn't want to leave that evidence behind because he didn't want, he didn't want to tell people what to think. Mm -hmm. yeah, he gave them materials for them to think with. So, so the archive is enormous, yet at the same time hugely frustrating. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I was just reading an essay in that uh, New per Perspectives on Kubrick collection. And, and there's one essay that uh, talks about the archive and says archives are very much about absences. That is, you think you're going to find everything there, but of course, it's about what's not there. As Jeffrey said, you've got to look outside of the archive. My purpose with the archive was, was quite limited. I, w I only wanted to look at the Aryan papers uh, materials. Uh, and and, and that's, what I was, that's what I was given. And, uh, you know, you, you, you put on the red gloves, and, and if you don't, they yell at you. And, uh, you know, but, but it is quite, it's quite a feeling, because you're leafing through the pages that obviously Kubrick typed and, and, and held. Uh, you know, you, you, there is a copy of Louis Bigley's War, Wartime Lies with Kubrick, Kubrick's annotations. They're quite sparse, I have to say. Uh, but but, but, it is, but it, it, it's quite an experience. I mean, you, I mean you, you, you are touching something that, that you kind of feel apprehensive about. Maybe you should not be touching that, right? As you said, it's that monolith, right? And of course, it's touching the monolith that's the core of the film. Um, so, um, but... Uh, but but it's a, but it's a, obviously an incredibly rich, a rich place for research when it comes to Kubrick. And of course, by having touched that monolith, we've evolved to the next stage. Of, uh, <laughs> uh, the archive actually looks like the space station in 2001. <laughs> um, you know, when they go to the moon space station, they've they've made it. It looks like that. If you want to know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jeffrey, in your book, The Wolf at the Door, you mention an account of a friend repeating a conversation he had with Kubrick. It goes like this, that probably what he most wanted to make was a film about the Holocaust, but good luck in putting all that into a two-hour movie. Marat has, has sort of introduced us to the Aryan papers, but I, I wanted to pull that out because I, I know that's something that, that everyone has looked into, the scholarship of the, the Aryan papers, so I thought we could we'd talk a little bit more about that. I think Brant made a very good point that there's a lot that went into each of Kubrick's decisions and certainly on this subject. It wasn't just because he found it personally and aesthetically challenging. I think the sort of details that you elicited are, are very crucial in terms of understanding as well as we can his motivations and his thinking. And so there I think there is some value to looking into the archives because those note cards are as revealing as you're going to get and it's uh, I think you've got a good job of stitching that all together and say well it's really a palimpsest and of course there are levels of consciousness here Kubrick like everybody operated on very level various levels of consciousness perhaps more than most of us simply because he was so obsessed with 
portraying the human condition in his films, and of course he himself was part of the data as a person uh, reacting to that history of his fellow human beings. Um, I think his statement to her is, is a classic of ambivalence, is that he calls his project a film, and then he says, try to get that all into a two-hour movie. In other words, he's aware of the limitations of the genre. Movies, we know what they're for, and there are films that do great jobs, including Kubrick's films, in tackling major issues in a way that most movies don't. Um, so I think there's a basic ambivalence there that both personal and aesthetic with a lot of other stuff added in. I would actually like to open up to questions now. Um, I think Mariah did an excellent job and it, it confirms my suspicions that Kubrick never wanted to confront Jewishness directly. The only time he makes an explicit reference to Jewishness, does anyone know? It's Full Metal Jacket and the word is kike. So the only time Kubrick explicitly refers to Jews, he uses that word. And I think, I mean, for me, you've nailed it, which is he just can't bring to put Jews on the screen. And, and, and he takes the story of, and if you look at the picture, oh, she's, she's a blonde actress, and he takes a pic, a, a, yeah, a, a story of a, of, a, of a woman and a child hiding their Jewishness. Um, but there was, there's a quote, and I just wanted to add this, because I think it adds to what, what Marat was saying, but I wanted to throw a question at him, and then, I'll, and then you can have your time, sorry, is Jack Nicholson said that Kubrick told him, you don't, f it's great when he says it, he goes, you don't photograph the reality, you don't photograph the reality, you photograph the photograph of the reality, and I think that precisely sums up what you're saying. But for me, the big thing is, I still think the question is unanswered, because he managed to make Full Metal Jacket in London, you know, not that long after the Vietnam War, he took a disused gas works in London and turned it. So this idea of detachment, proximity, and authenticity didn't bother him with that. So why didn't, you know, I think there is still something. Yeah. And I, I, I think you're right. I think it's he can't bring himself to do Jews on screen directly. Right, no, absolutely. And I would also say, I mean, this idea of, you know, how do you make a two-hour Hulk, how do you put all of that into two hours? Of course, it means that this 1991, and there is an enormously long history of Holocaust cinema that precedes that. And if, I mean, the question that everybody always asks, I mean, how can you depict Holocaust either in text or on screen? But again, but artists have done that. And what was really interesting to me is that Kubrick goes to the very beginning of war cinema and Holocaust cinema by looking at these Polish films and really foregrounding this idea of uh, of, Jewish, of, of, of Jewish resistance. And that's why also I think it explains why he was so you know, apprehensive about uh, Schindler's List, right? As he said, was he, said he said Schindler's List, it's, uh, it's not about the six million uh, you know, who, who were killed, but, but whatever, 2,000 that, that, that were saved. So Actually, he was even more condemnatory because yeah. he said it wasn't the six million who were killed, it was 600 who were saved. Or so that alliteration saved, right. underscores right. your point. Yeah. And he says a movie about success. When uh, Jan Harlan was here a couple weeks ago, uh, somebody asked about whether somebody else might come along and make the Aryan Papers as a film. Is there enough material? Is, is that even a possibility? Did he get through the script enough that if somebody, another director, wanted to? I think it would be possible. And I remember reading somewhere that somebody was considering making it, but I assume, of course, that the family wouldn't go for it. I, uh, to me, the, the, this is the issue with what we're dealing with when we look at Kubrick's archive, when we look at the literary stuff, is it's just the writing, and a film is audiovisual. Right. And, and the best description was when someone said, imagine coming across a script for 2001, and the script says, 
ape discovers stone. <laughs> like, you, you know, how, does, how do we get that into what he sees? Well, and that underscores the fact that really, even with all the documentation, with his, which is crucial, the best documentation are the films themselves, because he puts so much into them. People watching them can bring a lot to them and get a lot out as a result. See, in my book, I don't want to look at the unfinished projects. It's not a cop-out. It's because you can't judge a Kubrick film until it's filmed. Uh, you know, the, the, the rewriting went on uh, up until it was completed. And then the, uh, for Kubrick, the real art, like Hitchcock hated making films. He loved the pre-production. Pre and the, art, the movies was boring. That's why he looked bored on the set. And for Kubrick, the real art was editing. I don't, you know, there's Taught Napoleon's going to be made as a miniseries by the person who did True Detective. Um, uh, you know, it's not going to be Kubrick's. That's why, as I said, I mean, when I was trying to figure, sort of imagine what Darian papers would have liked, I went back to, I went back to Kubrick in, in this particular case, the uh, Barry Lyndon, because it, it is all about the visual. Do we have a question for the audience? I just wanted to read this quote from Arthur C. Clarke and get the panel's uh, reaction to it. And he says, I think Chiardello's breaking the glass was a cinematic gimmick. Stanley was listening to his inner demons at the time, and they have been, may have been telling him, what's a nice Jewish boy like you doing in a place like this? You know what Stanley's response to that was? And this we do know. He said, if Arthur said that, and I don't believe that he did. He's insulting both of our intelligences. Jan Harlan is in, I think, one of the German websites saying he thinks it's Kubrick's most Jewish movie, and he explained his reasons, and he said, Stanley liked my interpretation. Now, I don't know if my interpretation is like Jan's, but I would say, yeah, this is his religious turn that, that draws upon imagery of Jewish liturgy. It's a silent prayer, 2001. And what's our silent prayer? The Amidah. And eyes wide shut, what do we do when we're about to die? We close our eyes and recite the Shema. I think there's so much Jewishness under the um, surface and the imagery, and that's one example, but the whole first section is Genesis, and the final section is Kabbalistic. So, but I don't want to reveal too much. Yeah, and it's also, isn't 2001 about the unknowability of God and the fact that as an odyssey, at the end, the star child the human being who has evolved is coming home. It isn't going outward, it's coming home. So much of the discussion about Kubrick has been through a secular nature, but it does seem that in 2001, and really even Paths of Glory, there is a Jewish God in there. There's the, the Jewish God of the Old Testament. There's this vengeful God. I mean, it's sort of tied into that absurdity of, of human action or of machination action, but I wondered what you, you all thought of that, that perhaps somewhere in there there could be a Jewish religious point of view in these films. And I said, that's always tricky, right? Because, mm -hmm. of course, you don't have to be a Jew to allude to, the, to, allude to scripture, right? So as, as a scholar, as, a, as an interpreter, how do, you, how do you decide that this particular allusion to, you know, to, to, to scripture or to, to other religious texts is, in fact, within the Jewish framework is, is coming out of Jewish tradition rather than a more general uh, Christian or existentialist or... That's, a, that's always the question that I'm, that I'm asking myself. There's a Yiddish expression that for me sums up. Uh, it's not so much the Old Testament God, it's man plans, God laughs. And I think 
I, for me, I, again, uh, uh, Marat uh, said it in his talk, it's this, in my book, I'm going to be talking about the distinction between Menschlichkeit and Yiddishkeit and Goyem Nachis, you know, uh, uh, and that's what you, 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 I've put it in. It's, I think he's got a Yiddish mentality rather than a, a, a kind of Judaic mentality. But the film we haven't talked the most about, but it's probably his most in line with normative rabbinic thinking, is A Clockwork Orange. Um, which is ironic because Clockwork Orange is written by an openly Catholic writer as a as a homily on free will, and and uh, Kubrick takes it and um, you know, he makes some changes, but he ends up with the probably the most traditional Jewish view on free will that one could come out with, which is that it's better to be free and commit acts of violence and rape than to be a, a Clockwork Orange. So, mm. so in that we can see a very traditional way of thinking. Another question from the audience, please. In terms of, of source material, we talked about Arthur C. Clarke with 2001. What about The Shining? Uh, was there any kind of uh, relationship with uh, Stephen King on that? King hated Kubrick's movie. So much so that he made his own television miniseries to produce it the right way. And my view is, completely biased, but well-informed bias, is that King is a writer of entertainment, Kubrick is an intellectual, and that's why the films are so different. The, Kubrick's film deals with ideas and with history, and King's, he's very talented, but he's providing entertainment. Well, he obviously found something appealing about it, um, the whole idea of the supernatural, and I think he found this Overlook Hotel extremely compelling, as I, I said in my remarks. And I think there's another factor here, too, from at least Lolita through The Shining, there's a trope in Kubrick films, and it's about a small child discovering the horrors of the real world, and Danny is sort of the apotheosis of that. The, the other thing to think about is, is you should always put Kubrick's films within their cinematic context. I mean, I, I just did it, we've largely done it literally, I mean, although that Marat showed you that, you know, he's a filmmaker working in Hollywood who wants to make money. So he's aware of what's going on. So there's a filmic zeitgeist, and you can locate each of the films with... Barry Lyndon's probably the exception, and Eyes Wide Shut, but not even Eyes Wide Shut, actually. Probably Barry Lyndon's the exception as the film that doesn't fit into the 70s, of what's going on in mid-70s. If you look from Rosemary's Baby, which comes out the same year as 2001, which is interesting parallels, through to The Shining, and, and there's a book by Jason Zinnemann about this that got me thinking, uh, in, along with Jeffrey's book, is these are Jewish directors largely using Catholic protagonists or, or not Jewish protagonists with The Exorcist, uh, Amityville Horror, The Omen, to reflect on the nature of evil. And William Friedkin, who made The Exorcist, said in a recent interview, he's explicit, this is about the Holocaust. So, so you know, you can fit this. And, and, and he discovered that tech, that book came out in 77. He made the film by 80. Uh, so Clockwork Orange, he discovers, um, rereads in 68, 69, makes the film by 71. So it's so very easily adaptable for him, um, but fits into what's going on. So think of all the violent movies of the uh, late 60s, early 70s, like Straw Dogs and, um, and uh, uh, whatnot. So, so one can also look at Kubrick as being a filmmaker who, who knows what other films are going on. Spartacus, very much part of the epic genre, etc., etc. And there's also a very, and Jeffrey alluded to that, there's a really interesting link between horror genre and sci-fi genre and, and the Holocaust. And, and Kubrick was clearly interested in these lowbrow genres and these commercial, and these more popular kind of lowbrow writers. And sort of, it's audacious, of course, to stream the Holocaust 
through that. But, but there's, again, there's a long, there's a long tradition. I recently have been working on uh, Holocaust literature in Soviet contexts, where, of course, you could not openly talk about the Holocaust. And it was the sci science fiction writers, it was the sci-fi writers who took upon themselves to do that in these various allegorical ways. First of all, one comment on your uh, comment on the Aryan Papers. I would like to not think of it as a failure on Kubrick's uh, uh, mark, but a, uh, just a non-materialization of it in a film form. Right? But um, relative to what you were saying about not specifically portraying a Jewish character in film, his choice of names like Danny, Daniel in The Shining, and specifically David in, in 2001 is very interesting. And uh, um, I read that originally, Clark had wanted the character to be Alexander from the Odyssey, and when he switched it to David intentionally, it really upset Clark because his competitor Isaac Asimov was Jewish, and, and when he realized the connection, he was quite upset. But I think it makes the film so much more powerful and specific in that spiritual sense, is what you're saying about its Jewishness. I just wanted to address a comment about, um, you, know, you know how Marat said at the end that, that for Jeffrey, the, the Holocaust film is The Shining, and for me, it's the sh strange stuff. Actually, the Holocaust film for Kubrick is Fear and Desire, Killer's Kiss, The Killing, it's all of them. To me, and I was just working on this on the plane over here, is all his choice of names. And, and again, I go back to the master, Lenny, Lenny Bruce. He's, he's my rov on this one. In response to Barry Goldwater's 1964 complaint, he's like, Barry, Barry? He goes, you show me one guy called Barry. He's like, where's the, you know, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. He's like, all his choices of names, uh, 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 Private Sydney in, 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 in the first one, uh, um, Humbert, Humbert, he's mistaken. I mean, some of these are the source texts, but he retains them or changes them. Any use of the word Jack, which is his father's name, I know you've talked a lot about this, um, but also Jacob, Danny, Daniel, David Bowman, even his choice of names, the supposedly white bread names he uses for uh, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Harford, as in Harrison Ford, Goyish, is, is what Frederick Raphael says. Well, Harrison Ford isn't one. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's all these traces, and that's one of the ways. And, and, the, and the other thing that I find interesting is look at the naming choices that parents, <laughs> I love this. There's interesting research. When Jews emig emigrated to America, you, they picked for their children names that they thought that natives gave their children. Names like Milton, Lionel, Norman, Sidney, Stanley, right? Who were the only people who were naming their kids those names? <laughs> Jews. And if you go through the films, there's Sidneys and there's Barrys and, 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 and one little quote for me by Ben Sion Kaganoff, uh, he said, people who emigrated to America called themselves Jack, they named their sons Stanley, and if Stanley's were to have sons, they call them Barry. And I say that that's why, I mean, it's really interesting that in the Aryan papers against what was supposed to be his most explicit film about Jews, we have the, the female protagonist is Tanya, and, and, and the nephew is Masiek, a Polish name, right? So again, it's, it's so paradoxical. We actually are out of time. That's it, but there's a lot of scholarship here. There's a lot more to uncover. There is a lot that these gentlemen did not get to tonight. Thank you very much for coming, and enjoy your evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.